and welcome to the season one finale of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast with me, Dr. Kirsty McLeod. What a year it's been since episode one came out last summer. Under the strangest of circumstances, it's nevertheless been a pleasure and privilege to share the research and stories of the women that have featured over this first season. And there's more to come today. I'm joined by Dr. Crystal Kane to talk about her fascinating research that gets to the heart of why I think this field is so interesting. So often, animals just defy our expectations. More on that coming up. We're also joined by Dr. Doreen Almogil and Taralyn Camilleri-Carter to talk about how we've coped with the last year, strategies for avoiding burnout, and being kind to yourself during challenging times. Plus, a fantastic paper in focus on using museum specimens to study extinctions in Australian mammals from Dr. Emily Roycroft, and the lowdown on a new app to track balloon pollution from Ali McGee. The WE podcast will be taking a brief hiatus while I go on honeymoon and have a belated summer break, but I will be back with more great guests and features later in the year. As always, check out the episode notes and find out how to get in touch via the website, theweepodcast.org, and stay posted on when you can expect new episodes on the socials at the underscore we underscore podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening this season and enjoy the episode. great to be joined today by Dr. Crystal Kane, an integrative organismal biologist and senior lecturer in animal behaviour at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Crystal and her lab seek to understand why animals are so varied in their behaviour and appearance and how complex social traits evolve. Really fascinating stuff, so it's fantastic to have you here to talk about it. Thanks, Crystal. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Kirsty. So I first have to ask, uh, New Zealand has taken one of the more extreme responses to the COVID pandemic. What has it been like living and working in academia there over the last year? And how have you been doing generally? Uh, thanks for asking. Um, it's been it's been a really interesting ride because obviously I'm not a Kiwi. You can tell by my accent. So I'm from America originally. And so I'm, I'm very aware of what's happening in the rest of the world and very aware of what's happening in America. But in New Zealand... Um, we went very hard, very fast, very early on. We saw what was happening in the rest of the world and you know, people didn't want that to happen here. I was actually in the middle of sabbatical and I had just seen you in Tasmania yeah, actually, yeah. and got called back to New Zealand. And then once teaching started again, we did have a couple of lockdowns around that. But other than those, those few really hard lockdowns where we're living life normally, but unlike the rest of the world, we're doing it without fear and without the disease really being kind of overshadowing it. Mm. So I feel very privileged to be here and it feels a bit surreal to see what's going on yeah. in other parts of the world and how, how much everyone's struggling with it. Yeah. So apart from those first few lockdowns, I guess it, it sounds like it probably hasn't impacted your work too much, which is nice. No, not too much. So I had um, actually three PhD students that were kind of in the final field season of their PhDs right in the middle of when those lockdowns happened. So it definitely had some consequences for us. But compared to the rest of the world, it's been really minor. So as you said, you're from the U.S., uh, and yeah. started out there in East Texas. Uh, yeah. How did you wind up in Auckland and what were some of the projects that led you there along the way? Yeah, it was never a planned type thing. I think a lot of people's journeys in academia is a, it's just a 
this opportunity opened up and so I took it type thing. So grew up pretty, pretty feral in East Texas, so pretty <laughs> wild in the woods and everything. And it's a pretty rural area. My only kind of idea around like what you could do with a sciencey background was become a medical doctor. So that's kind of what I thought I was going to do. And then started university and realized that there was a lot of other options. But I worked as a wildlife biologist actually for a long time. But I knew that to get much further, I needed to do some postgraduate studies. And I wasn't really keen on staying in that particular field. And so I started um, doing a lot of reading and discovered the whole field of ecology, evolution and behavior. And I'm really, it really appealed to me because if we, once we get talking about projects, we'll see them. And I'm really interested in all kinds of different things and how they intersect with each other. And so EEB is perfect for that. You know, it's like you're interested in how all these different messy bits kind of come together and, and create these marvelous animals. Um, and so I wound up in Indiana doing my PhD in Indiana, which is a fantastic department. I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to go there. And then, you know, as you start finishing your PhD, you start casting about wondering where you're going to go next, what kind of opportunities there might be. And so I was applying for quite a different thing, quite a number of things. Um, um, but what I was really had my heart set on was part of my PhD had been around uh, female competition and how female competition was kind of doing different things from what we expected it to do. So I kind of wanted to follow up on that. Naomi Langmore at Australian National University had been doing some stuff when she was um, in the UK with Dunnox and had moved back to Australia and was interested in continuing this. So I had contacted her and we wrote a few fellowship proposals together. Next thing I know, I was moving to Australia and thinking I was only going to be there for a year. I only had a year of fellowship money. And, but I got there and really liked ANU. And Naomi and I found some more money here. And then I worked with a couple other people at ANU and got some money there and just kind of cobbled it together. So I wound up being there for almost five years in the end. And in the midst of that, this job came up in New Zealand. And New Zealand hadn't really been on my radar. It's a small country. There's not a whole lot of universities here. And so I was like, well, I mean, might as well throw your hat in the ring. And then here we are five years later. So when I was first learning about evolutionary biology, I of course learned the trope that males of the species are usually more ornamented because of sexual selection. But you're really digging into why sometimes you see um, ornamentation in females, which kind of goes against a lot of those early uh, thoughts. So can you tell us a bit about that research? Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating thing. So we, we have these really strong ideas about sexual selection and sexual selection is certainly a really powerful force that is driving a lot of it. And, and if you if you read about sexual selection, it's all about all oh, this force on males and females don't really get a look in other than to say that they should be choosing, they should be careful about who they mate with. So they should be picking the most ridiculous males they can find. And so based on that, when you look around the animal kingdom, you expect to see most animals being really sexually dimorphic, real big sex differences, and all males should be really elaborate in some way or the other. But the reality is only, you know, something like 10% of species have really extreme sex differences in that way. Most species are actually really mildly dimorphic, or if they're dimorphic at all, it's only, you know, a little bit. And then there's a handful of species where, you know, females are more ornamented than the males. Now, those are usually easy to explain. It's just the flip side of sexual selection. Those are the rare species like 
you know, seahorses and stuff where the, the males are, females are competing for the males. But more commonly, you see these species where females also have some versions of these traits. And the, the old explanation for this, the one Darwin came up with, well, it's just because males and females share all these genetics, right? So if it's good for the male, the the female's going to inherit those genes, his daughter's going to inherit those genes, and it's just going to drag the females around. And that's why we see that kind of stuff. And so the species I did my PhD on, the males and females look almost the same. And I was like, cool, no one's really tested this. So I'm like, I'm going to go and look at this. And over and over again, I found that that was falling over. It just wasn't holding up to the data. And I was really surprised by it. I was expecting to be able to test this and show it. But the females that were more aggressive were more successful. The females that had more testosterone were more aggressive. And so they were more successful. And this was just kind of blowing my mind. And, you know, as this often happens to a PhD student, it still happens to me. It's like you get some data and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is totally opposite of what I thought. So you start reading a bit more deeply into the thing you probably should have read a bit more deeply into before <laughs> you did familiar. the study. Yeah. <laughs> And so you find this paper from the 80s that um, Mary Jane Westeverhard had written that was all about social selection. It's all about this idea, that, okay, well, maybe females compete for males in the same way, but they have to compete for stuff, right? I mean, females need nest sites, they need territories, they need parental care, they need to be able to feed their offspring. And any competition like that can really drive the evolution of these traits, and so that's what I wound up doing in Australia with the fairy wrens is looking at female song. And that was a similar kind of thing. We see these, you know, brightly colored females or these females with song or these females um, with weird ornaments and stuff. And almost always they're using them as some kind of signal to help them compete with other females or other animals. Basically, it just tells you that we've got these really entrenched assumptions in evolutionary biology. And they often make perfect sense. They're logical. They, they follow our expectations. But it's really important to test those because oftentimes we're wrong. I mean, biology is very good at showing us we're wrong. Yeah. Can you talk me through the results of the Fairy Wren project? Oh, well, there's been a number of them. Um, so I initially went to work on female song, and I thought that was really fascinating thing. So if any listeners are from the Northern Hemisphere, from Europe and North America, female song is kind of a weird thing because we generally think of females as not singing. And even some of the textbook definitions say that females don't sing. But anyone that lives in the tropics, that lives in the Southern Hemisphere, they know that female song is really, really common. We started just measuring um, song rates and how females respond to other female song versus male song and all this stuff and how it relates to reproductive success. And the females that are singing the most are also seem to be the females that are on the really good territories and are having the most chicks. So this was some work that um, I did initially with superb fairy wrens and the superb fairy wrens are probably the best known. They have the really blue and black males, but these really I mean, the females are kind of like an animated ball of dust, right? They're just these little brown <laughs> puff balls. Um, and so you don't think of them as being this really aggressive um, type species. But if you look across for errands more generally, there's a lot of variation in females. So you have really um, cryptically colored females, but you also have really brightly colored electric blue and white females up in cans. And then in Papua New Guinea, you have females that look almost identical to the males and they're really striking black and white. And so um, with a group of fairy wren biologists, 
we decided we were going to kind of compare female ornamentation and female song and stuff all across Australia. Here's another evolutionary assumption is we have this idea that being brightly colored is really dangerous. It's going to attract predators, right? And so we're like, cool, well, no one's really tested that. I mean, it makes sense again, but let's test this. So we made a whole bunch of little fake fairy wrens and we put them out all over Australia and painted them to either look like a really dull female, a bright female, or brightly colored male, expecting these brightly colored ones to get hit a lot more often. And boy, were we wrong. All three of the models got attacked with equal rates. And if you look in some of the habitats, the, the most open habitat where visibility is the best, the females are actually getting hammered. I mean, they were just getting eaten a lot more than the males. So it seems like the predators are preferentially attacking these dull females. And that really flips everything on its head. And this, the most recent stuff is kind of looking at these assumptions around when females should be really colorful. So we have this idea that the most colorful males are probably that way because they're the ones that are competing the most intensely. If we look across species, we're like, okay, well, maybe let's, let's look at all these fairy wren females and see are the most ornamented females, are they the ones that are most responsive to intruders or not? And we're finding not. It's actually these really cryptically colored females are the ones that really lose their mind when an intruder comes into their territory but they live in really open habitats. So they're really vulnerable to predators. And so it's probably this really interesting interaction between vulnerability to predators, you know, advantages of being brightly colored, sex differences in their ability to be vigilant and all this messy fun stuff that is going on with that. That's super cool. Uh, so mm. you're also working on a new project, which kind of takes a di slightly different direction on vocal learning. Mm. Vocal learning is a pretty incredible trait. We couldn't do what we're doing right now, right? If we didn't have vocal learning and humans are one of the, well, we think one of the rare species that's able to do it. This ability to listen to others around us and learn and imitate. But it, we don't really understand when and why vocal learning evolved in birds. It's something that we've just kind of ignored. We focused on zebra finches and a couple other species to understand the, the brain part of how vocal learning works. One of the really interesting things is we have songbirds like the fairy wrens and they vocally learn. And then we have hummingbirds and they vocally learn and parrots, right? Parrots will, will tell you off if you, they spend too much time with someone with a bad vocabulary. <laughs> but those um, in the old bird family tree, those were spread out really far from each other. And so scientists assumed or thought that because they're really far away from each other, those were each different evolutionary origins of vocal learning. And then some really exciting work came out um, not too long ago where they totally changed the bird family tree in a few important ways. And one of the important ways is the songbirds and the parrots got stuck right together. So they're right beside each other. And in evolutionary biology, if you see the same trait in two closely related groups, you often think, well, maybe it actually evolved in the ancestor of those two. And then they both carried it forward. But there's this one group of birds that's between the parrots and between the songbirds, and that's the New Zealand wrens. And they they make these very simple vocalizations. And because their their syrinx, which is their vocal production organ, is quite simple, everyone's assumed that they're not learners for a really long time. So we've been trying to study that. Again, here's an assumption. 
let's go test that assumption. But we can't do what you would usually do with trying to, to learn if something's a vocal learner, because what you typically would do would be bring it into the lab, raise it in isolation, play it someone else's songs and see if they can pick it up, right? These birds are very small, they're very insectivorous, so they die if you keep them in captivity for more than a couple of days. They're also very special, so they're they're considered punga or treasure, treasures to the um, native peoples. And so we're not gonna be bringing these animals into the lab. So we have to be creative and try a bunch of other different ways. So we're trying a bunch of different indirect ways to try to figure out if these birds are vocal learners. Sounds exciting. Look forward to seeing more about that coming out. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so thanks very much, Crystal, for joining me. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with the group discussion. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back shortly. This episode's paper in focus is called Museum Genomics Reveals the Rapid Decline and Extinction of Australian Rodents Since European Settlement. And I'm here with the lead author, Dr. Emily Roycroft, a postdoc at the Australian National University in Canberra. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the paper, tell us a bit about your broader research interests and what you're doing at ANU. So my research focuses broadly on genomics of native Australian mammals and more recently on native Australian reptiles. So I'm interested in questions like um, what generates diversity in native Australian species and um, reconstructing declines since European colonisation of Australia, the genetic relationships between different species uh, but using big data. So now that we can generate gen genomic scale data from um, across the diversity of different species, we can get really high resolution information about how species are related to each other. So this paper, as the title suggests, uses museum specimens to assess how Australian rodents have declined. Talk me through how this question arose and then how you went about this study. So the project started off um, with a question about what the genetic decline has been in native Australian species since the arrival of Europeans. Australia has the worst rate of recent mammalian extinction in the world. So since European um, colonisation in 1788, there's been um, 34 mammal species that have become extinct, but um, a total of 100 different um, species all up. So we were really interested in characterising not just the declines in species that are still stuck around, but um, the decline, the level of genetic decline in species that were lost. So to do that, we needed to use museum specimens because um, many of these species now only exist in our collections. So we were really lucky to be able to access collections from across Australia as well as some international collections to be able to um, subsample these really important specimens and get genomic data from them to be able to, to first reconstruct how they're related to each other and to living species and then to approximate how much genetic diversity was actually in each of these species at the time that those specimens were collected and get a bit of, bit of a better picture of what we've lost as a result of recent extinction. So the genetic diversity, is that related to things like population size? Yeah, so genetic diversity and can be used as a proxy to determine essentially what the population size might have been at the, at the time that that particular specimen was collected. So even by 
estimating heterozygosity from a single individual specimen, we can get a minimum estimate of what the population, the relative population size for that species would have been at the time that the specimen was collected. So what's actually involved with taking a museum specimen and generating genome scale data from it? Because a lot of these specimens are extremely valuable, we try to be as minimally invasive as we possibly can, but at the same time while trying to optimise the quality of the data that we can get. So um, we either use parts of the belly skin. So for museum prepped mammals, they're often already cut through the middle, the midline. Um, is how they actually prepare the specimen. So that's completely non-invasive. It's just taking a piece from an already open cut in the specimen. And then in contrast, we're also able to take tissue for us from the toe pads of some specimens and as well opportunistically take um, some bone that was exposed in some of the specimens that were more damaged. And we got really great DNA, um, really good quality DNA from both toe pads and bones. And for most cases, we were able to do that minimally invasively so that the specimen was still in essentially the same condition that we found it. Um, but, but in doing that, also getting this really valuable genomic data from that specimen. So there were a few key results from the paper that were really interesting. So let's dive into those a bit. First, it revealed that larger bodied rodents appear to have elevated extinction risk. Can you speculate on why that might be? So there are a number of different possibilities, but um, I think one of the big contributing factors is because um, in Australia, small mammals are at risk as a result of predation by feral species and um, feral cats is, are probably the biggest contributors to that. And so you could imagine that feral cats might preferentially select for larger bodied rodents and perhaps those are easier for them to catch as well. They might be a little bit slower and a little bit easier for cats to find. Um, it also is possible that uh, larger bodied species are more susceptible to agricultural impacts and that they, they potentially live in the types of habitats that are more impacted by recent European practices like land clearing and farming. So you also found that extinction rates varied among biomes. Does that take into account things like agriculture? Yeah, so in the arid biome, species tend to be smaller than in the mesic and monsoon biomes in Australia. But what we found was that even among those, it was the large of, of the smaller species that were most impacted in, in arid environments and um, similar across other biomes as well. So I think there's a relationship um, or an interaction between the type of habitat species live on, uh, live in, how um, strongly that environment has been impacted by feral cats, for example, to what extent land clearing and um, agriculture has been kind of impacting that particular habitat type, I think is probably also a contributing factor. Mm. Um, so it's a really complex interaction of lots of different things. So is there anything we can learn from studies like this for conservation going forward? Uh, I'm thinking kind of specifically about the value of using museum collections like this. Well, one of the really exciting parts of this study was that we were able to determine by looking at museum specimens and comparing them to more recent specimens of living species that actually a species that we thought was extinct is um, still around on an island population in Western Australia. So we previously thought that that species had a particular range that spanned through Western Australia and into the Northern Territory. But now from um, these new revelations in this study, we see that that species essentially spanned the entire continent of Australia that will potentially have 
consequences for the listing of this species and for an understanding of how dramatically its range has collapsed in the last 150 years. And as well, we can get insights into where conservation resources are most needed by looking at which species are most at risk and what factors might um, make them susceptible to extinction risk. Um, so body size is one of those focusing on particular habitat types and we know that extinction risk might be elevated um, is another component of that as well. Awesome. Well, congratulations on the paper. Uh, it is available Thank in you. PNAS. We'll put a link in the episode notes and good luck with uh, your upcoming research. Thank you. I'm joined today by Ali McGee, an undergraduate at the University of Scranton studying biology. Ali has uh, something that she would like your help with. Uh, she has a new app that she would like you all to go and download. Uh, so she's going to tell us about her project now. So Ali, um, tell us about the, the broader project first and then we can, we can talk about the app. Yeah, so the um, target of my project is balloon pollution, which is an important issue that hasn't gotten a bunch of media attention. The big question is how balloon pollution impacts wildlife and how it impacts the environment. Because of biodegradation, how it affects the soil, how it affects the atmosphere, all the microplastic level things, but it also has impacts on individual animals that can become entangled in balloons, ingest them, which can be fatal to them if, if the balloon gets caught in their digestive system. So the balloons that we're talking about, is this when the sort of balloons that when people release them as part of some event and then they come down? Yeah, generally balloons get released pretty frequently and events that include balloon releases are a big polluter. So these are usually helium filled because they go up in the air and come down and end up somewhere you don't really think twice about. Mm. We are looking at latex mylar balloons mainly. Do you know off the top of your head how long it takes a balloon like that to degrade? There have been a few studies, but that is actually a, another component of my research here where I am looking at balloon degradation in soil and water. Um, I'm looking at latex and mylar. Yeah, okay. So you've you've developed this app. It's called the Float app, F-L-O-A-T, uh, with full stops, periods in between each letter. Tell me how that is figuring into this project. Float stands for Flying Litter Operations App Tracker. So you download it. And if you see a polluted balloon, you can report it. And it will ask you questions like, is the balloon latex or mylar? Where is it? Is it impacting wildlife? And the hope is to identify global patterns in balloon pollution. So I can see if there's a source to sink pattern and that will allow for a targeted response to balloon pollution. How do you tell a difference between a latex and a mylar balloon? Uh, latex balloons are those rubbery ones, and the mylar ones are that foily type. Ah, okay. Uh, so the app is currently available for Android, is that right? Right. So where can people download it? You can download it on the Google Play Store for Android users. And while we're working on finding something for Apple users, 
I do have a Facebook page and an email that will be available for users to report um, balloon sightings. So you mentioned that you're interested in looking at global patterns. So you are keen to get data from any anywhere in the world. So any of our listeners can get involved in this. Yeah, absolutely. So if anybody sees balloons out in, uh, I guess the wild, but also are you interested in like gardens or, you know, on the roadside, yeah, that kind of thing? Anything. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So any balloon you see, make sure that you download the app. If you're an Android user, we'll put the link in the episode notes uh, and we'll spread it about on Twitter and Instagram uh, or get in touch with Ali via the float app Facebook page, which we'll also have a link to, or you can drop her an email. So thanks Ali for coming on to talk about this and best of luck with the project. Welcome back to the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. We are back with Dr. Crystal Kane, Senior Lecturer at the University of Auckland, and we are joined today by Dr. Doreen Almogil, a postdoctoral associate at the Boissonneau Evolutionary Genomic Lab at New York University in Abu Dhabi. Welcome, Doreen. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So I know you from your past research on genetic diversity in sharks, but you have made a bit of a switch in study organism. Uh, so you're currently exploring genomic adaptation of a very successful invasive species that's also an important model species in developmental research, the African clawed frog, uh, Xenopus levis, of course. So tell us a bit about this new project. So it's quite an interesting model. I mean, surprisingly, it's been used in developmental research for a very long time but there's so little known about its genomic evolution and adaptation to its new environment and how it actually manages its expand, the expansion as an invasive species. And what's specifically really interesting about it is it's um, a polyploid species. So uh, polyploidy, it's um, uh, the duplication of the genome and it could be in different forms. So it could be just um, a duplication of the genome itself or a merge of two different genomes that it didn't, like with the gamete, didn't really uh, reduce. Um, and that's what's happening with the um, uh, Xenopus levis is that it's an allo poly, uh, polyploid. So it just merged from two different genomes and it didn't really reduce in its gametes. So then it just kept the two genomes on their state. And it's quite an interesting discussion between the two different genomes. And that's what's, that's another layer of the research that we would like to explore is that how do these two genomes interact? And let's say that they have this discussion on which of these subgenomes dominate and how this actually serves into adaptation. So if you have a duplicate like that, does that create kind of some genetic redundancy? And then that can, you can then have like latent genetic diversity that evolution can act on. Yeah, which could be like a good thing and a bad thing. So it depends on the combination. So it could be either, either like two genes that work together or like, you know, reduce some of the functionality or one dominate the other one. It could be like, you know, any relationship, like, you know, it could either work or it's like a breakup. Mm. So <laughs> it's like, you know, that the duplicates that they work together and they give new functionalities or they will just destroy each other and that probably like, you know, lead to a downstream of the species. Cool. 
So as well as doing all this awesome research, you have also established a platform at Muthalath. Can you tell us about this? Yes. So um, when I early started my career, it was a quite challenging um, in the Arabian Peninsula to find job opportunities, um, to be connected with events. So Muthalath is a platform just to make everything available to all the scientists in the region so they can have access to job openings, conferences, courses, and just general science-related events in the region. Uh, so I'll put the link to that in uh, the episode notes, obviously, so people in that area can, can check that out and get connected. Uh, so we're also joined today by Tara Lynn Camilleri-Carter, a PhD candidate at Monash University, working with Damien Dowling and Matt Piper. Thanks for joining us today, Tara. Thanks for having me. Very exciting. Uh, so tell us about your PhD project at Monash. Sure. So I look at the parental effects of diet, essentially. So I sort of see myself sitting in the nutritional ecology space. I seem to find interest in, in anything evolutionarily ecology, um, anything with how living things interact with their environment and how you know their environment shapes them. So for me, that's looking at fruit flies in the lab. I change the protein to carbohydrate ratios, um, sucrose levels, and I see how that affects the fitness, the health um, of their offspring um, and grand offspring, sort of um, looking at for those transgenerational effects kind of beyond um, just the direct effects of, of genes alone. What are the general effects of maternal or or paternal? I guess you look at both. both yeah, things. so I so I do look at both. Uh, largely, paternal effects have been ignored, um, and what I wanted to do was really look at the relative contributions of both. Um, really look at how they interact, um, and what I have found is um, they do interact. Um, they are both very important to offspring and grand offspring life history in terms of. Uh, lifespan, um, reproduction, um, you know, fat accumulation, protein content in the body, and that they are non-additive. So, uh, you know, complex interactions depending on the generation, um, the diet, um, and the trait that you're sort of looking at. Super interesting. So Doreen is working on one kind of famous model organism and fruit flies are definitely another. Uh, How do you enjoy working on, on Drosophila? Yeah, I like. Look, I like it because even though they're not the most charismatic of species. So previously, I was doing a lot of primatology. So you know, I went to Cambodia, was looking at um, gibbons in the jungle and things like that. And so it's not as charismatic as looking at those kind of beautiful animals in a natural setting. But what I really love about it is that you can get at those evolutionarily conserved processes, um, and that you can really design these complex kind of experiments using these fully factorial designs with this range of diets. And it's still a lot of work, um, but you can sort of do it. You can go home each day. You know, you can kind of, it's, it's a lot, you know, different from kind of that field work kind of environment and you can get at really um, more juicy questions. Mm. Yeah. You are part of an organisation called Graduate Women Victoria that I wanted to yeah. highlight. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So Graduate Women Victoria are... Um, an organisation that was started around 100 years ago in Victoria, Australia, as a space for academic women to actually be able to come together and talk about, um, you know, science, literature, art, um, whatever it might be, because they they were excluded from those male spaces and came out of, um, you know, a lot of suffragette movements and things like that. And there is, um, throughout Australia, there's one in each state and there's also 
you know, national and international uh, graduate women body. Today, um, what we do is we have a scholarship round every year where we give scholarships and bursaries um, to women pursuing um, higher education. So I actually won one a couple of years ago, uh, won a special award, and then I joined the committee. Um, so to sort of, you know, help out there as well. So we are actually recording the final episode of season one of this podcast. So thanks for being here for that. <laughs> uh, of course, when I started doing this last uh, summer um, or winter, I guess, for you Southern Hemisphere people, <laughs> I had no concept that an entire year long season would pass. And at the end, we would still be in a pandemic. Um, so even though we've, you know, we're all in different countries, I'm sure we've all had very different experiences at that kind of national level. Uh, but I'd like to just discuss how you've all been coping with that and what your strategies are for avoiding the kind of academic burnout that a lot of people are talking about now that we're a year in. So uh, Crystal, I'll start with you. I think it's one of those things that's kind of hard to pinpoint a particular thing because it is this relentless kind of thing that's been going on for all of us for, for more than a year now. And so it's been this kind of incessant thing and it's really it keeps compounding on itself you know where you think okay I can manage this for this time but your your everyday work hasn't slacked off at all and if anything it's increased if you're you know doing most things and like for teaching now we don't just plan our regular teaching we have to be planning our regular teaching and then we often have overseas students so we're kind of running two courses in parallel with each other so that's almost doubled that amount of work and then, you know, my lab group, my research students are from all over the place. You know, I've got students from Brazil, I've got students from Ireland, I've got students from Malaysia, and I'm trying to support them and, and they're all worried about their families. And so, you know, some of them had gone overseas and then kind of got stuck overseas and aren't able to get back. And so you're trying to navigate a little bit of that kind of thing. And we actually just had a lab meeting today, ironically enough, and it wasn't even my suggestion, despite this podcast about burnout, about it being like a not just being tired. It's this, you know, persistent, relentless kind of thing where it just wears you down and it gets to a point where you can't really recover from it just by taking a week or so off. It's almost like a really serious physical injury where you really have to take time and focus on the recovery from it. And probably the better thing to do is to try to never get to that spot to begin with. And that, but that requires a lot more management and a lot more dedication to taking care of yourself in all these different ways. Mm. How about you, Doreen? I think this pandemic was actually my first chance to understand what um, a mental fatigue is. I think we go through it, but we don't really give it the time or the awareness. Most of our work, I think it, it has two parts, part that you enjoy and part that you have to do to get to that part where you enjoy it. And I think with the mental fatigue, it's just having a lot of that part that you don't really enjoy and you're not aware of that process. So you just get into that loss of interest, not really engage on your daily uh, work and, and, that, and all that. I think my way to deal with it is, is to try and do uh, small side things, completely different, maybe not related to science, things that are um, new to me, like no... An, a, a, class of uh, I don't know something in art or like a dancing class or something that will engage me and challenge me and introduce that interest element again so I can connect with it and my brain feels that 
thrive again, and then I can bring it to my work environment. But my previous um, strategies were mostly like, you know, take some break, just relax, do nothing, blah, 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 but it doesn't really work. Yeah, it's, it's very tricky. I agree with what you're both saying, really. I think it's um, taking time off and taking time away um, is still really important, but it can't really be, you can't take time off of the pandemic. It's here. It's, it's, that's sort of what it is. And it is um, constant. So what I kind of feel is that anything else that happens is happening in your life is just compounded by the fact things that might already be difficult to deal with um, illness um, illness in yourself illness in you know even if it's nothing to do with COVID family members death in the family anything that you would need um, you know to really uh, take the time to really deal with is compounded by the fact that that we're in a pandemic and that we're we're in and out of lockdowns or, um, you know, hyper aware or we've switched, you know, having to do things online or we have less social, whatever it might be, I think it's it's just compounding kind of everything. Um, I agree with Doreen when you were talking about um, doing something totally different. Um, that's that's kind of where I go as well. Um, so I, I suffer chronic illness as well. So recently I've, I decided to switch to part-time. So that's one thing that I've, that, that I've sort of done um, that's really helped me pace my activities and get my health back and all that kind of and my mental health as well um, and actually scheduling time to do activities that um, maybe a couple of years ago I would have thought, I would have still liked doing, but I would have thought I don't have time to do, I don't have time for a hobby. I don't have time to do this. I have to pour all of my mental energy into, you know, building this career, getting this PhD and, and you know, success, success kind of thing. Um, whereas now I'm like, no, it's good to take this day out to do, you know, painting, art, whatever it might be. Um, those kinds of things are just completely different from the day to day. I was just going to say, I think that as uh, as academics, I think we're particularly vulnerable to burnout because to do this sort of job, to be a scientist, you really do have to be quite mentally tough kind of across the board. And we're used to kind of pushing through barriers and pushing through this mental toughness. And we don't go home at the end of the day and stop thinking about our jobs usually. Um, And so we're used to having our jobs kind of living with us all the time. As you were saying, uh, Tara, it's just like it it never ends at this point. It's just layered on top of everything else. And we kind of have this idea like, oh, I'm tough. I can I'll push through this like I've done with other things and I'll be able to to get out of the side. And if I get to this point, it'll feel better. And if I get to this point, it'll feel better. And it's it it doesn't work anymore because we've been doing that for too long now. We're out of reserves. And yeah, yeah. I think when we're so focused on having our career is like, you know, the core of our reference is like self-worth and value in life and all that on that day where things are not really working. You just mentally feel like, you know, life is not yeah. working for you. And I think the good thing about just having that broader scale of like having different things in your life, it just compensates on your psychology. When things are not working at work, you can focus in other compartments in your mind. So you can actually get your energy there and bring it back to your workspace when, when you need it. It's that balance, which I think I, I completely failed in doing during my PhD. So, so Tara, it's really nice to know that actually you, you're aware of it and you took a stand and you decided to do like an action towards it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think particularly 
I remember one point, you know, my husband works full time and he was doing a master's and I was doing my PhD. And there was a time where because we weren't, you know, you work, you're on Zoom all day or you're at the, you know, at home all day, there's no delineation between, okay, now we're going to go out with friends or now we're going to go here or do that. So you end up, if you don't really watch yourself, you end up just working. You need something else to break it up. And that's where, that's where those, um, you know, hobbies and things I feel like come in. As I think will be familiar to all of you, over the last year, there's kind of been these phases. You know, there were there were periods I actually enjoyed and felt like I was being really productive, and then I crashed really hard last summer. And and people most often said, "Well, you should take a couple of weeks off." It it definitely helped to take some time off, but all the same stuff was still there when I came back, and now I was just two weeks behind. So. I'd come back and be like, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not better. I'm not fixed. I still feel emotionally, mentally exhausted. And now I'm just like further behind. So I did a thread on Twitter about this a few weeks ago. And, you know, I was trying to give advice on here's what I've done to, instead of just relying on breaks, here's how I'm trying to make my daily life a bit better. Um, but I, I got some, you know, feedback from people who were saying, you know, don't glorify just trying to push through burnout. So it's kind of a difficult thing to trade off. Like, obviously, I'm not saying that you should just push through because there is this tendency in academia to working to your limit. And I don't want to do that. But at the same time, I it became stressful for me to just have people say, take a break, because I just couldn't feasibly stop everything for the length of time that I felt like it would have been necessary for me. So how do you guys deal with that trade-off of like taking breaks and actually just trying to perhaps change your work pattern? Tara, it sounds like going part-time yeah. was good for you in that sense. Yeah, I have cha- I have changed the way that I work. I think um I mean I have had I've had the Ill- I've had different illnesses. I've had different things for the, the duration of the PhD, but I very much started the PhD from a place of I'm going to do all of this despite this illness. And, and then when I started to feel that I was burning out, which was just a bit before COVID, I started to feel like, oh, I'm not really enjoying things anymore. You know, that that whole loss of, um, you know, that kind of enjoyment. I started to feel that same way, like, oh, I can push through this. And I, and I did pretty successfully in terms of getting the work done, but not very successfully in terms of feeling really healthy and well. And then um, having to have a more recent um, surgery, I just started to think, okay, I, I need to change the way that I'm approaching this, you know. Um, and for me, um, being sort of forced to take sick leave and it was, I felt kind of the same, like, well, now I've had this X months off and now it's just added that time. You know, I just, you know, these things are still there when you go back, you know, it's not kind of like it just evaporates. So I kind of felt that same way. So I started to just even on the days where I could do a little bit, I think just having one or two really simple things to tick off your to-do list that are work-related um, and then do a rest, you know, have a rest or do what you need to do, take a walk or yeah, whatever your, you know, kind of thing is. I've I've actually noticed that, even though I'm working part-time, I'm still getting quite a lot done. Um, and it, I'm not spending a lot of that unproductive time sitting, kind of worrying like, oh, I'm being really tired so you actually can't kind of get, 
you know, you're looking, oh, can I do this figure any better? And you can't even read it anymore because you're so tired. Those kinds of things I just don't do anymore. I just think I'm tired. I'm going to stop. Yeah. I also try and give myself like one thing that I, to do a day rather than I'm going to spend two hours on this and then at 2 p.m. I'm going to switch to this. If I complete that one task for the day, then I, you know, anything else is bonus. And that, that has yeah. really helped. I was just going to say, you have to look at your tasks too, because sometimes I would have a task, one task, but I know that it's going to take me hours and hours, but I I had this unrealistic expectation. I'm going to be able to get that done in one day. Whereas if I did maybe say, okay, just spend an hour doing that, then, you know, it's still an hour work done. Yeah. I still struggle with the unrealistic expectations of achievements through the day. So it's something that, but it's good to have awareness about it and just like act towards it. When I managed to gain the awareness that I'm going through this time is just to change my daily routine and be more merciful on myself. So instead of having this stressful start of the day where I have to be there at a certain time, blah, 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 I will just really have more relaxed mornings and some affirmations, like just like stretching and things and then start the day. Uh, late mornings work for me. So I just don't feel like I'm starting on a stressful note. Um, changing my work location. So I working like from different cafes instead of the office. Um, I don't know. It's just changing that vibe. So you still feel like, you know, you're taking time off from your office while you're working. So you're contributing to less stress around it. Yeah, for sure. I think um, for me, it's a bunch of different little things that I do. So some of it is trying to take care of myself so I don't get to that spot. I mean, that's always the best thing, right? Because once you get to that spot, it's really hard to get back from that. And so I I do have hobbies and stuff that I am pretty committed to and will protect quite fiercely so that I can make sure and do them. And the physical things, that helps me because that's the only way I can really shut my brain down. So a lot of it's sport type things. I, I, I love your idea, Tara, about like, if you can be more efficient, that really is spectacular because we can do something, you know, it's that whole 80, 20 rule. Like you're going to get 80% of the work done in the first 20 minutes. And usually you should just probably stop there instead of staring at the screen for the next two hours and getting nowhere with it and just go and do something else. You know, that's a big part of it. Sometimes um, it's about becoming realizing which things you can do not as great as high performing academic type people. We always want to do everything perfectly and, if you try to do everything perfectly, you're going to fail at most things. And so you have to learn how to, this is good enough for this thing. This thing I need to give hundred percent for. And then it gets to a point when you have a lot of students or you have a lot of obligations and you have a lot of service and you have a lot of this, some balls are going to drop. It's going to, it's going to happen. And you just have to be like, yep, that one can drop. That one can drop. That one can drop your own health, your own well-being. It can't drop because once that one breaks, you know, it's going to take way too long to get that one back together again, right? And so sometimes it's about communicating to your collaborators or the people that you work with, like, I'm real sorry, it's going to be a while. So you can like put that off this week's list or this month's list and not feel as guilty about it can sometimes be a really good way of doing it. And a lot of us feel obligation around the things that we're involved in and so we don't want to let other people down and so we put our own things on the back burner and do the things we have to do for other people 
And then that just makes you feel even worse. So absolutely. Yeah, definitely. There, there's something that comes with the training of a scientist as well to be in, in a way a perfectionist. And I think we, at the beginning, we think that this works in our favor and just like perfecting the work, which, which, is, which is needed mm -hmm. in some stage. But as you advance in your career, it becomes something that works against you. Did it take you some time to reach that stage or not feel like, I think in, in, in my case, I would just constantly feel like it, it affects my self-esteem, I think. And I just want mm -hmm. to normalize that it's okay it's just part of the process yes, i think it's a tricky thing to figure out um because you're right we are trained to be really perfectionists and we don't want there to be any errors and there are definitely those instances where you can't afford for them to be errors like when you're doing the lab work or you're doing the analysis or something that's where you want to be like really on it and you want this to be perfect a big part of the problem is just identifying which things it's okay for it to not be perfect on and then beyond that, I think I think you're right that it is an esteem and it's an ego thing that you want everything that comes from you to be perfect. And so I think part of it's a little bit of a personality trait for me that I've I've always been willing to be wrong or to screw up a little bit. And and, and that I'm okay with that. I'm confident enough in like who I am. And and this goes back to that the thing about the hobbies, because in sport, I think if you're not pushing yourself to a point where you're failing sometimes you're not learning, you're not expanding and stuff. And so you have to move yourself into a space where you feel okay trying something and falling down. And so you get comfortable yeah. being in that space a little bit. And then you can bring that into other parts of your life. Yeah. And for me, having not grown up anywhere near academia, having had a totally different career, I I feel like that's really, that really helps the perspective that at the end of the day, um, it is just a job. Like, <laughs> I know we, we think about it a lot. We, we take it home. Um, we really love it. We're passionate about it. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it helps to treat things a little bit more as a job um, than a life's calling. Yeah. If anybody says to me again, this, uh, like, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, like, get out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Put it in the bin. Put it in the bin. That's not yeah. a helpful or accurate statement. I think it's still work, yeah. right? It's still work. And like you were saying, Doreen, there's there's always the bits that you love doing and then there's the bits that you kind of have to do. There's, I, I mean, there's just nothing that I know of where you're not going to have a day where you think, oh, you know, I don't really feel like I want to do this or this aspect of it. I think it's just normal and healthy. So I, I think I should just say that obviously here when we talk about mental exhaustion and burnout, these are our personal experiences and any thoughts and advice we throw around are not medical opinions or a substitute for getting professional help. Um, when I was struggling with a bit of burnout uh, during my field season, actually, I you know went to a therapist. Very, very helpful experience. So I recommend um, doing that. Yeah, yeah. Look, I see a psychologist regularly. It's so good to have somebody say, you know, you need to have compassion for yourself. You know, those kinds of things that, um, you know, my my friends and family could tell me that, you know, all day long. Um, but I, it's not that I don't intend to listen. It's just that when somebody professional says it, you think, oh, okay, they must know. I'll <laughs> I also as a life coach, which helped me a lot to access some of my subconscious beliefs so I think it also just helps you to accept uh, things and be more kind to yourself 
Um, and surprisingly, it's always easier, as you mentioned, that when someone from the outside validates something and tells you that it's okay to take some break and be good to yourself and all that. So it's, uh, it's, it's always helpful to have external help. So we've mentioned hobbies a bit kind of peripherally. I thought that would be a fun thing to end on. I think that is cool for people to hear about. So what are your fun hobbies or things that you do outside of work to unwind? I play ultimate frisbee really seriously. And and when I say seriously, like at the world level, you know, I played at Worlds and was supposed to be at Worlds just this a few months ago, but of course Worlds got canceled because <laughs> gestures to the general state of things, right? I've played for a really long time at various different levels. And sometimes that can mean training three or four nice. days a week. I find that doing something like that, where my brain is no longer allowed to think about everything else is really, really healing for me. I'm not very good at sitting. I'm not a good a person who can just go and sit and do things other than like read a book or something. But sometimes we all get tired of reading, right? So we do. I do find relaxing to go and do things, go on hikes, you know, go garden, go play frisbee, go do something like that. Well, mine, during the pandemic, it changed a bit. But currently what I'm doing is uh, is kayak and Afrobeat dancing classes. And I enjoy it a lot. I'm not good in any of them, but that's my favorite space. So that's, that's what it's meant to be. But uh, occasionally I also join just random art um, workshop classes. So nothing really specific. It's whatever interests me, I will just sign up and, and do something different. In person or virtual? Uh, well, some of them now in person, but also in, in like virtual stuff. I like to paint. So I've, I've sort of always done that. You know, in high school, I did a lot of English languages, um, drama, debating, you know, artistic um, kind of media subjects. And um, I kind of carried that through a lot of my hobbies. So I like painting, but it doesn't really involve other people, which can be, you know, good and bad, depending on what you feel that you need. So the last few weeks, I've started um, singing lessons, um, which again is one of those things that you've never, ever thought that I had any aptitude for or anything, but it's something that involves, you know, other people, you know, go and, you know, learn and can play music with other people. And it's, it's really completely switches your brain off from anything else because you're just focused on what you're doing and um, trying to improve um, and doing those kinds of things. So it's really, really fun. It's been a wild ride over this first season. So thank you very much all for joining me today and for this great discussion. Yeah, thank you. Really great. Thanks so much really for having us. This is really fun.